Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Good evening, everyone. So this past summer, most of you might know, or some of you might not know, that my family and I moved from our house about 500 feet away to a different house. And um, if you don't know, it's Sam the Pumpkin Man's house. Probably will always be Sam the Pumpkin Man's house. In fact, if you go on Google right now, on Google Maps, and you put in my address, there's a little pin, and it says Sam's Pumpkin Patch in Google on top of my house. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of fun, actually. It's kind of an honor to live there. Well, one of my favorite parts about that house is this really big burn pile in the backyard. Now, Lisa and I moved from manicured subdivision to three acres, and we think we're farmers now. You know, we pretty much have a field. I don't do anything with it other than wreck go-karts, but we've got a field. And in this field, in the part of the area of the field, there is this, there was, when I got there, there was this huge pile of sticks and leftover brush, and it was dry, and I was just, my eyes were huge. I was ready to burn that thing. I was excited, and Lisa had some rules about it. You know, she was a little bit nervous already. I've got a lot of friends that are firefighters, so we felt pretty okay that we could try it. And so we started burning that thing, and it went, like, huge. I was a little bit nervous huge, you know, like, ooh, how's this going to go? But I had the hose close by. And the burn pile burned for most of the day. So it got close to night, and Lisa's like, take the hose down there. We've got to douse that thing with water. We've got to put it out. And it's a hot summer day. So I was down there for 30 or 40 minutes putting the fire out. And I thought I had it out really good, you know. There was no, it wasn't even smoldering anymore. It was just out. So the next day was Sunday, and I come to church. We go home, and I look out the back, and there's a fire just burning in my yard. It just starts burning again. But what happened was a hot day and, some, and there was still some wood left and it caught on fire again. But I finally got the fire to go out. And then about a week later, the Gillespie boys loaded up their wagon and put about 7,000 pallets on top of their wagon and brought them over because we were going to burn them. And they unloaded them and we let it on fire again and it was a raging fire. It was interesting to watch this one pile go from blazing fire to dwindling fire to smoldering, you know, embers, to out, to back to be a fire again. And I thought a lot about that area. It's still kind of black in this one spot in my yard right now that we'll probably deal with later. And I thought, you know, life is a little bit like that sometimes. That if we're honest with ourselves, every single day is not sweeter and sweeter and easier and easier as the days go by. There are some days that are flaming fires of great joy and pleasure and happiness and then there's some days when it's sort of smoldering and it's difficult even as a christian there are days with life with christ is wonderful and great and there's sunshine and things are going well and there are days that walking from the garage to the house is just difficult and you're sad and you're struggling and maybe you fight some depression or some anxiety or some stress maybe there's days that are confusing and misunderstood But life with Christ can sort of go like that. It can become difficult. It's probably the reason David praised God over and over in the Psalms when he said to God, you restore my soul. A soul doesn't need to be restored. 
if it never bottoms out. Do you understand? If it never goes into some difficult moments. And over and over, as David cycled through life, he came back to this point that God could restore his soul. He had that because he had some bad days in life. You see, joy as a Christian is not something that is just static that you always are experiencing. It takes work. You've got to work at it to make sure that you have joy. And like that fire, if the fire is resembling of us in our lives having a sense of joy, for a fire to, bu- to burn, it has to have fuel. It has to have wood. And for us, we've got to ask ourselves in the Christian life, how do we continue to supply that fire so that we have joy? The kindling or the wood for our fire of our soul is the word of God. And that's really what we're going to zero in on tonight, okay? The word of God is the kindling and the wood that keeps the fire going in your life. And he's got some words for us. That's what Psalm 19 is really all about, is God speaking to us. And by that word, you and I are sustained. We live, we exist, we have life. In fact, it says, by the word of God in Hebrews eleven three, the very world exists because God speaks it into existence. You and I breathe because God allows us by his word to uphold life. In fact, he would tell us over and over that it's by the word of God that we live and we breathe. And so we've got to turn to the word. And Psalm 19 really seems like two different poems that come together as one. If you were listening along with Tim, you probably noticed that the first six verses sound really different than verses 7 through 10. The first six verses are talking about creation and the sun and the sky and, and the glory of God and creation and all these beautiful things like the heavens. And then he gets down to verse 7 through 10 and he starts talking about the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord. And it all revolves around this one idea that the word from God is what supplies, restores, and strengthens your soul. Let's start first with the silent word. That's what I'm going to call it today. The first point is the silent word. If you look in verses 1 through 6, he's getting our eyes to lift up and see the grandeur of all of creation. You notice he says in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And he goes on to reflect about how the sun comes out like a bridegroom or like a strong man running his course. And he says, there's not a crack or crevice in the world that can hide from the heat of the sun. And it cycles from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And what he's talking about, he's trying to get your eyes up off of just yourself or around you and see the grandeur of creation, the beauty of it, to see it. This is the thing about creation that's so awe-inspiring in this way. Because you can go to the Grand Canyon or to the ocean or just step out your front porch and look at the sunrise. And there's something about creation that stops humanity that makes us gaze at it, if we'll just pause and see it, that makes us look at it like it's a fine piece of artwork because it is a fine piece of artwork. There's a designer, an artist behind it. In fact, God cares about that, and he wants you to see something, and he wants you to hear something. Now, in verses 1 through 6, he tells us that creation, look at the, there's four verbs that are used to describe here in creation. He says, the heavens declare, the verb declare, Then he says, the sky above proclaims. 
Verse 2, day unto day pours out speech. Night unto night in verse 2 says it reveals knowledge. Declare, proclaim, pour out, reveal. What David is trying to tell you is that creation has a message for us. It's trying to tell us something. It's trying to scream to us some eternal truth that is important to anchor us into God and his word to us. The message is this, first and foremost. Creation tells us, first of all, that what made creation is divine, is greater than just normal material. He says the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim the handiwork of God. And what he's saying is that when you see that beautiful purple or red sunrise that's just gorgeous to look at, or you see the Grand Canyon, or you see the ocean or a mountain or something like that, when you see those things, it's telling to you there's a divine being behind them. When you see the cycle of the seasons, and you see life growing up from the earth and then going into dormant stage when it comes into the wintertime. When you see that day after day happening, you see the sunrise and the sunset and there's rhythm to that. And the world is operating under what the Greeks called the cosmos, which just meant the logical order of things. The earth makes sense. It seems to be that there are laws of nature that guide this world. He's saying, listen, there's a message that what made us is divine. That's why he says it's glory of God and the handiwork. The second message is this. Creation will tell you, if you'll pay attention to creation, not only what made us is divine, but what instructs us or guides us is good. You see, he references this down. If you look down in verse 2, day unto day pours out speech, but night unto night reveals knowledge. That if you contemplate and think about creation, you see it work and then you see it revealed, like day unto day, revealing with light, pours out language or speech. But then in the nighttime, in the respite, there's knowledge and reflection and learning. He says down in verse 6, or the end of verse 4, pardon me, in them he set the tent for the sun, the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. You see, when you look at the sun, what he's saying is, is it operates like a man on a mission, like it's been guided, like it's been directed. The sun moves like it's been orchestrated or told to move, meaning something behind the sun and something behind the flowers and something behind the seasons has told those things to do what they're doing. And they do it on repeat, right? Many of you, you, some of you are older than me, some of you are younger than me, but as long as we have been alive, we have seen the sun come up and the sun go down. We've seen plants grow and then plants die. We've, we've seen the cycle of this earth. And what he's saying is that there's an order to it. And what guides those things, what instructs those things is good. The sun runs his course like he has joy. Now here's the simple message creation is trying to tell you. Look to all of creation and remember this that there is a divine creator behind it and behind you, and there is a divine guider, God, instructing creation how to live and work and be, and the same is true for us. And so that brings us to the second part of the poem here. It's not just the silent word, but there's also a specific word. 
God has done more than just reveal this generic truth like, hey, somebody made you and you're special. It's more than that. Yes, God has revealed that general truth through creation as he's told us in different places in the Bible that creation is a testimony to anybody who will look that God exists, that you exist because of God. But God has done more than just testify that he exists in the world. He's actually revealed to us a very specific will of his. He wants us to know some things about his mind from his mind to us. And that is what we have called scripture, which means words that come from God, sacred words from the divine, holy scripture. And you see here in verses 7 through 10, the psalmist here, David, gives us, leads us into seeing Scripture for what it is. What is Scripture? Is it just, um, you know, like Aesop's fables, some wise old tales that have a good meaning to them? Is it just annals of history? Is it just recorded history? Well, what actually is Scripture? When you come into Scripture, you find that there's a lot of different things in there, right? There's law. There's history, there's poetry, there's wisdom, there's accounts, there's epistles or instruction and guidance. There's all kinds of things. And he tells us this, um, verses 7 through 10, there's these specific ways that he describes what Scripture is. He says it's a law, meaning it is a governing idea. It is something that tells us how to live, how we were designed to live. When you see like the law of nature that we see in the world, like law of gravity, we call it, meaning that's what that thing operates by. Scripture is law. It reveals to us exactly how we are supposed to live. Scripture is testimony. You see down there in verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It testifies to something. It tells us. It bears witness about something. In verse 8, he says, it's the precepts of the Lord. Precepts are like instruction or specific guidance, meaning go this way and not this way. Do this and don't do that. Those are the precepts of God that you and I are to follow. And he says ultimately that it's commandments. Yes, that means that there is something above us, something greater than us, something wiser than us that is telling us what to do, how to live. That's what Scripture is is law telling you how you were designed to work it is um, a testimony declaring truth about who god is and who we are it is precepts instruction on where to go and what not to do and it is commandments from somebody above us telling us how to live god is revealing in scripture what you have before you god is revealing ultimate reality about himself and when you understand who he is, you then have reality about who you are. You then understand from Scripture about what this world is and why it's here and why we're here, answering the big questions of life. And ultimately, he gives us the answer for how we are supposed to live. So if this is what Scripture is, what does Scripture do for us? Why is he giving it to us? Now, he gives us some instructions here. In verse 7, look at this. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's clean, it's complete, it's right, meaning it's good. He says the testimony of the Lord is sure, you can trust it. The precepts of the Lord are right, they're accurate, they're just. And the commandments of the Lord are pure, meaning this, that there is no ill intent in what God tells you to do. When God commands us to do something, he has no ill intent with it. It is pure, it is clean. Nobody tells you the truth about 
life and about this world like God does. I promise you, nobody, not your friends, not your spouse, not your neighbors, not your preacher, not even yourself tells you the truth like God tells you the truth in a way that combines it with love and reality and clarity. And so when you see what Scripture is, you then might naturally ask, well, what does Scripture do for us then? Okay, if this is what Scripture is, why are we supposed to read it and study it and understand it? He says in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Here's what it does, first of all. It revives the soul. This is what I was talking about at the beginning. Scripture, the Word of God, is the wood, the kindling to the fire of your life. That if you, your fire is going out or you're in a rainstorm of life, when your fire starts going out, you've got to throw wood on that fire. And the word of God is that. When he says reviving the soul, the soul for the Hebrew person was the true self. And we hear so much talk about this today. That you've got to find your true self and discover your true self and look inward. And when you find out who you are, just live your truth or live your true self. And, and our cultures just run amuck with this idea of being your true self. But the reality is, inside of here... It's broken and messy. I've made a mess of my life. I'm confused and deceived by Satan. I'm twisted and unsure at times. And so God says, my word can actually revive the true person you're supposed to be. You won't find outside of God reality for who you are and what you're supposed to be. You won't. You're too fickle, we're too broken, we're too messy, and we'll be misunderstood. So he says the word of God, the testimony of God, revives the soul. It gives us wisdom in verse 7. The, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. He doesn't say making intelligent the dumb. That's not what God's interested in. He's saying, I want you to have wisdom, to be able to, to discern things, to know right from wrong, and to be presented with situations where you know what to do. In fact, that's one of the great benefits of Scripture. It's not just that it's the answers to the test, but that it brings you into wisdom for how you're supposed to live. It guides you. It disciples you. It trains you. And if you view Scripture as just like a cheat code for how to pass the test so that you get into heaven with God, you might miss the depth of guiding you in wisdom. He says Scripture, in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart this is hebrew speak for meaning this it's going to give you thoughts that bring you joy now how many of you in here don't want to spend most of your day thinking about things that bring you joy you probably spend a lot of your time thinking about things that worry you and stress you and give you anxiety and concern and frustration and anger right just for a moment inventory the amount of minutes or hours that you spend in your head, which are there all day, thinking about things that annoy you, frustrate you, anger you, hurt you, right? It's a lot, isn't it? Or am I the only one? You just leave me out to, okay. A lot of our mind is spent, time, the time in our mind is spent thinking about things that hurt us, that bother us, that annoy us, that stress us, that worry us, that frustrate us. And he's saying, when you really drink deep of the word of God, it gives you a kind of thinking that brings joy. Not that those things go away, the bothersome things, the worrisome things, those don't just automatically go away, but what scripture does is lift your eyes with perspective to see those things that capture our minds for what they really are and the size that they really should be in our life, 
and gives us an eternal perspective that never abandons us with joy. Do you understand? Scripture brings you up to do that. Lastly, he says, the commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. It means it lets you see clearly to recognize deception. So you and I need to be continuing to add fuel to the fire of our life to have joy. And we got to lift our eyes to see the silent word of creation that reminds us that there is a good God who has made us and guided us. And he's given us a specific word, scripture, that is so good for us. In fact, Jesus would say it this way, you can't live by bread alone. You live by the word of God. So what's it going to take for us to get into it? This is the hard part, okay? I know it's difficult to get into the word of God sometimes. We feel busy. We feel rushed. feel anxious. feel behind sometimes. feel overwhelmed. We come to scripture and we don't know what to do, right? We play what we call Russian roulette with scripture. We just kind of open the page, put our finger down and start reading somewhere and we don't know what, how to make sense of it, right? Sometimes it's difficult. And there are just times in our lives when we feel a little bit mundane, It may be numb to really wanting to get into Scripture. I think it's okay to acknowledge that. It's important you start there if you're having a dry spell with Scripture and not wanting to get into it. But here's what he says in verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. He's saying what it takes is a desire to want the Word of God. Meaning, when we lack desire, when we lack a hunger for it, we might graze over it with our eyes, but we're going to miss it. And so he's saying, you've got to have a searching, hungering, seeking heart that wants the things that I described to you, like restored to your true self. Do you want that? Scripture offers it. You've got to have a want for wisdom, not to be foolish. You've got to have a want for joyful thinking. You've got to have a want for clarity and to be able to see things for right and wrong and not be deceived. When you have a want for that, that's the start of it. But we've got one other barrier to us. Now notice the end here, verses 11 through 14. I want to read this again with you and we'll be done. That he has given us a silent word. I said to you a specific word, but you've got to have, verses 11 through 14, a searching heart, a seeking heart. And he says it starts with this in verse 11. Moreover, by them talking about scripture your servant is warned in keeping them there is great reward there's two things that really mark a searching heart for the word of god okay here's the two tests if you really have a searching heart one is do you listen to it he says by them your servant is warned meaning that you listen to the word of god you actually listen to it Now, this is key for you to get this, that you actually listen to this. And I would ask you to think seriously about this. Who in your life do you listen to other than yourself? Think about it. Who do you actually listen to? And when I say listen, I don't mean just that you hear them or that you take information from them. But to listen means to come underneath and learn from, to open your ears He's saying you've got to be a person who's willing to listen to Scripture. This is more than just reading the Bible. This requires that we reflect upon it, that we contemplate about it, that we think about it. And this is sort of like the difference between a slapstick comedy movie and a really good dramatic movie. 
Any of you here like good slapstick comedy? Donovan, I know you do. Okay, good, right? One of my favorites is Dumb and Dumber. Have you guys ever seen Dumb and Dumber? No? Okay. It's one of my favorite movies just because when you watch that movie, you can just laugh at people being like idiots, you know, and they act stupid and they say dumb things and you don't really have to think or engage with it and you just laugh at them, but there's really not much to do with my life, you know, I hope, right? You just, you watch them driving down the road in this dog car and you're just like, man, that's really funny because they're dumb, but it does, that, that's comedy. But then have you ever watched a serious drama movie, maybe like um, Good Will Hunting? Have you seen Good Will Hunting? With Will Hunting, the young man who has a troubled childhood, grew up in a foster system, was a janitor, and he was solving these really difficult math problems in, in the school where he worked and became, they, they recognized he was a genius, but he had a lot of challenges, a lot of problems. He needed to go to a counselor, Robin Williams, who would counsel him. And he was dealing with childhood issues. And Robin Williams was also dealing with the loss of a spouse. And you watch this movie, and if you take five or ten minutes and you think about it, you start to say, well, man, have I processed these things in my life? And I see some of Robin Williams in me, and I see some of Will Hunting in me. And you start, do you see the difference between reading and reflecting? There's one difference. You ask questions about it. Now here's where I want to get real practical with you. When you read the Bible, I'm just talking about plain, when you sit down and read the Bible, if all you do is read the words, you might miss it. You've got to carve out some space when you read the Bible to ask some really important questions. They're really simple. When you read the Bible, just a section of the scripture, ask it certain things like, what does this tell me about God? Just pause. What does this Bible passage tell me about God? What Number two, what does this Bible t passage tell me about people, and more specifically about me? What does this tell me about, like sin or how I should live or things I should avoid? What does this example tell us about humanity? And you can find a treasure trove of information when you think about it that way. Thirdly, what does this passage tell me about how to live? Meaning, how can I obey? You see that if you just pause and read the story of Jacob and you see his life or you read the story of David or you come to the New Testament and read about Christ or you can listen to Paul's argumentation about the Spirit and you start working in Scripture and thinking, what does this mean about God and about me and about life and how to live? If you carve out 5, 10, 15 minutes to just think after you read, the Word of God will start to feed you you understand? This is one of the reasons on a very practical note why I would really suggest not reading scripture on your phone. Nothing wrong with it. I got the Bible app on my phone right now and there are times I'm sitting down, I'll read scripture or forgot my Bible and pull it. Nothing wrong at all. Please, if you have a smartphone, get the Bible app on it. But listen, when you sit down in the morning or the evening, you're going to read scripture. One of the challenges with being on your phone is that there's constant distractions. You're reading, I'm in Exodus 14, I'm reading, oh cool, look, Moses is going to cross the Red Sea. Being, my wife just texted me. And what do you do? Now I can like swipe down on the phone, text her real back. And go, but do you see how it distracts you? We are in such a distracted age. I want to encourage you to find 30 minutes a day where you put the phone on silent and you read and you think about the Word of God. You see, 
A searching heart is one that listens to God, but it's also one that lives the way that God wants them to live. He says in verse 11, Moreover, your servant is warned by Scripture, and in keeping Scripture, there's great reward. That means that you and I have to do the real work of grinding out obedience. Obedience is not always easy, simple, and joyful. It's not always. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's challenging. But what I love about the Bible is that it's clear enough for you to know what to do. Did you know that? It's clear enough to know what to do. You read the story of Cain and Abel. It's clear, right? Don't kill people this week. Can you guys do that? We can all obey that part of the Bible, right? That, good practice. You didn't kill anybody. Don't kill people. Then you get into stories like David and Bathsheba. And you read that and you're like, man, David is not with his men out to war. He's up on the roof where he shouldn't be. And then he's staring at something he shouldn't be staring at. And then he lets that marinate in his head. And then he goes and gets that thing, Bathsheba, that he shouldn't have gotten. And he made a mess of his life for a while, didn't he? So maybe I should need to watch my eyes and be in the place I need. Do you see what I'm saying? We got to live this stuff. And the Bible is clear about that. It's very simple. We got to do that. But listen, let me finish with this thought. This all sounds pretty simple. Listen to the Bible, do the Bible, great. But there's one big hurdle that stands in our way. And it's not access to Scripture. It's not an enemy outside of us. It's actually us inside of ourselves. Listen to verse 12. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. You see, what David is doing is acknowledging his weakness. He's saying, I'm a man who is, first of all, blind. Look, verse 12. Who can discern his errors? He, he, David is the most honest person in this moment. He's saying, listen, I know that I don't know where my sin still lies. I know that I have blind spots and dark spots. I don't see all the ways that I still need to grow. So God, who can discern his errors? I don't have the capacity by myself to judge myself rightly without the help from somebody else. He says we're not only blind, but we're also guilty. Declare me innocent from hidden faults, meaning he knows that there's guilt. There's this residing guilt that's in him that eats at him, that gnaws at him, that bothers him. Verse 13, he says that we also can be proud. You notice he asks God for the help to not go out there and just presumptuously sin. He's like, God, I need your help to not just out of my pride do whatever I want to do. Give me the strength. So he says we're blind. He says we're guilty. He says we're proud. Lastly, he says, let not sin have dominion over me. He says that we are powerless. Meaning I've got to ask somebody else, namely God, to help me with my sin. Some of you all might be trying to face and overcome your sin all by yourself without companionship without discipleship without prayer without help he's saying listen the reality of us is this we're blind we are um, guilty we are proud we are powerless and you know what that leaves us when you're blind and guilty and proud and powerless that leaves you vulnerable to the attack of satan you know what satan uses to attack you the very same thing God uses to strengthen you, his words. That's all Satan does. You know, Satan has no power over your life. He can't make you do anything. 
He doesn't come into your home and grab you by the ear and drag you to the sin and make you do the sin. Do you know what Satan does? He uses the exact same thing God uses, his words. But Satan's words are lies, deception, hyperbole, exaggeration. What he does is he gets you stirred up, dis, you know, discombobulated, and without clarity you go the wrong way he lies to us exaggerates to us that's what he did to eve he deceived her he lied to her and so that's why if you see at the end of verse 14 when he says let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight david is saying god i want my life to be right to you but he says the very last word "O lord my rock and my redeemer this is why david is crying out he's saying god i need a rock i need a redeemer to help me overcome my weaknesses my pride my guilt my blindness so that i will be reawakened to love your word and be fed by your word fueled by your word and live by your word but i'm weak and i'm blind and i'm broken and i'm powerless to overcome sin without your help so i need you as my rock which is safety protect me and my redeemer, my hero, the one who will go in front of me and fight my battles for me and defeat the enemy that's before me so that I can walk with you. I need that. Just think about David in this moment. When he's crying out, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, he's referencing prayer and scrolls of scripture. He's referencing God's sovereign providential hand. And yes, we have those things in our life. When you need God's help, you have prayer and you have scripture but you have one advantage over david that he didn't have you see this word that fuels your soul that gives you life that is going to be the sustaining aspect to your joy the rest of your life is a word from god that became flesh jesus christ and he dwelt among us he was and is the word of god and that word that became flesh he dwelt among us he says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And when you look at the life of Jesus, he is the loudest, clearest declaration that God created you, that God loves you, that God has a purpose and plan for every life that's on this world, and that you and I make a mess of it. And God didn't abandon us when we messed up. In fact, he came for us, sacrificed for us made a way for us to be saved that is the clearest simplest message that the bible wants to tell you and jesus christ is that message and what you have to do is receive him as the word then you'll come to the word the bible and meditate and learn and grow from it so that your life will have sustaining enduring joy if you need to receive jesus as the word of god as the word that saves your soul we're here to help you let's stand and sing the song with alan you can come as we sing